Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Catholic Dating Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Apologies for missing a week last week. I just had many, many things going on um, and just was not able to put an episode together, but we are back and I'm so glad we are. Today's topic might not seem relevant to dating, but I think it's relevant to singleness, um, which most people dating hopefully are single, because the older you get and are still single, the more you have to make financial decisions about your present, about your future, kind of on your own, which is not a place a lot of people expect to find themselves. And so I was just like that. I never planned or expected to buy a home before I was married. And a few years ago, I did just that. So I share about my experience doing that, not to like, you know, flaunt my property or something, but really to, to kind of walk you through what that was like for me and kind of uh, what it signified um, and, and kind of how it, you know, it was excitement mixed with disappointment based on um, not making that next step with a spouse, but just alone. Um, but also the ways that God really um, showed up for me throughout that decision. So hopefully that's encouraging to you. Also, somebody wrote in with um, a cool little story based on something I shared in the previous episode. She said, I loved your story on the podcast about your grandmother who found her husband by looking through his work file. Our parents and grandparents' generation definitely had different standards for dating and courtship. My parents met at a wedding, had a dinner date after that party, and only three more in-person dates before getting married all within a year. Most of the dates were over the phone because they were long distance. They'll be 40 years married this year. My maternal grandfather saw my grandmother one day and my great grandpa was like, don't even think about looking at my daughter unless you plan to marry her. So my grandfather asked for her hand. Yeah, it's really fun hearing stories from past generations about how they ended up married. And I think it, it just signifies and drives home the fact that dating is a modern phenomenon. So if you feel confused by the dating world, that's because it is not something that is like even though it's part of society generally speaking today, like it's not something that has been part of human society for generations and generations. Like people have always been marrying, uh, you know, for thousands of years, people have been forming committed partnerships with someone of the opposite sex with whom they choose to rear children, uh, but how they got into those companionships has varied greatly. That's something I notice watching Indian matchmaking because they'll always show little vignettes of couples, older couples who had arranged marriages and, you know, they show them like, you know, 30, 40 years later, you know, very much at ease with one another and, and seeming very happy about their decision. But it's so crazy to imagine marrying someone that you have barely met. Meanwhile, these millennial um, Indians or Indian Americans are working with a matchmaker 
which is kind of the midway between arranged marriage and what they call in India love marriage. Um, they want to sort of, they want someone who meets all their criteria. They want to have that spark, but like they're using someone to help them get there. And it's, I think, intended in those situations usually to be a kind of quick courtship. So, you know, there's no one right way to do it. There's definitely wise ways to do it and unwise ways to do it, but God can work through it all. So, yeah. All right. Let's get into today's topic. So, I, when I first graduated college, you know, it, it's funny, like I graduated college at age 22, like most people. And I already had friends who like got engaged senior year and were getting married that summer. I had other friends who got engaged not long after graduation and, you know, got married within the next year or two. And so obviously there are many challenges to that. You're trying to combine two lives. You have to figure out where you want to live, where you're both going to have jobs most likely. Um, And so there's certainly a lot of practical challenges to that. But there's also practical challenges to figuring out like what you're going to do as, as a single person. I mean, housing is expensive. Um, so most cases you're, you're looking at roommates, um, you're looking at moving back home. Uh, a lot of people are graduating with, with debt. And so they have to combine like that with paying for housing and car payments and all those other things. And so there can just be some financial challenges to being single, um, your single income, but you're, you're probably starting at the bottom of, of whatever your field is. So for me, I graduated college and I got a job at the high school that I went to and, which was obviously in, in you know, the town that I grew up in. My parents were still there. Uh, my mom actually worked at the school as well. And so I moved back home and dedicated three years living at home to completely paying off my student loans, which I'm very proud of. And I'm very glad that I was able to do that in such a timely manner because so many people aren't. I mean, I have my older sister got engaged a year after she graduated college, got married the next year. And her and her husband, you know, married at age 24, they both had college loans that they had to have on top of mortgage and then, you know, started having kids. And so, you know, they're still dealing with the the student loans. So I'm so grateful that I was able to live at home and, and pay off my loans. And then once I did that, I was like, okay, I, I want to move out, spread my wings. Uh, and so I moved in with a roommate. That lasted a little less than a year. Um, there were some challenges there. So I moved back home for another year. And then I was like trying to figure out what to do. Cause I'm like, all right, now I'm 20, I think it's 26. It's like, I'm 26. I don't want to keep like living at home. Like that's getting, that's getting to be a little old. Right. And already at that point, the majority of my friends had gotten married or were soon to get married. And in the challenge of that was that meant I really didn't have anybody to live with. Like I couldn't, it was very hard to find a roommate uh, I cannot imagine living with another married couple as a single person other than my parents. That just doesn't sound ideal at all. So I was kind of in a tough spot because I was a teacher and teachers don't make that much money. Uh, and there's plenty of other professions that even though they're respectable, they, they don't make a lot of money. And, and even if you do make a lot of money, depending on the city that you live in, housing costs can just be so expensive. So I'm like, what do I do? You know, I, I think I was... I think I was starting to think about this when I was 26 and then I turned 27 and it was like, I really got to figure something out. Uh, and my mom was like, well, have you thought about buying a house? I'm like, no, I don't want to buy a house. First of all, houses are a lot of work and I don't know how to take care of a house. Like I can clean, but 
I don't know about repairs and all those kinds of things. Um, second of all, I was like, I don't know if I can afford a house. And really, third of all, the, the deepest thing was like, I'm single. I want to get married. I don't want to buy a house as a single person. That almost sounds like you're resigning yourself to not getting married. And it also sounds a little bit like, I don't know, it's just kind of sad. Like, like you like you sort of dream about the, the thought of like being engaged and like planning where you're going to live together and like buying a house together. And there's something kind of romantic about that. And so just like the thought of buying a house was kind of depressing because it was sort of a reminder of where I was in life and that I wasn't where I wanted to be or hoped I would be or where my friends were. And, you know, it's it, it's kind of good to acknowledge like the tensions in, in that state that we're not always where we hope to be and, and and maybe you feel good about where you are but then all of a sudden you look to your left and your right and you see people at different spots and you start to feel kind of bad about that or insecure about that and then on top of that there's just the daunting decision of like buying a house is a huge financial investment all right most people are not paying cash for a house they're getting a mortgage and most people are getting a 30-year mortgage like <laughs> like okay I'm 27 I don't know what I'm going to be doing when I'm 57. I don't even going to live to be 57. Like, God, I hope I do. But like, that's scary. You know, at least when you're you're getting married, you're kind of already thinking about the long term future. Like you're getting you've already said or you're getting ready to say vows to this person for, you know, as long as you both shall live. So there is kind of this forever mentality. But when you're single, you do not have that forever mentality because you don't have somebody to have that forever mentality with. And so it's kind of freaking out. I'm like, I, like, you know, I don't have anybody to live with and rent that the, here's the other thing like, yeah, like rent. Now the thing I don't know, maybe housing's a little bit different at this particular time in our in our economy. But this was 2019. And so the pandemic hadn't happened yet. The inflation had not happened yet. Um, and so rent as a like a like a rent for one person, you know, in an apartment was was pretty pricey like it was going to be a large portion of my salary and it kind of sucks to be feel like you're throwing away more than half of your salary just to temporarily live in a place that you don't even own um, but I knew I just knew like I love my parents we have a good relationship but I just knew I had to kind of be on my own because that was going to help me really grow and um, become you know more responsible more independent um, just kind of mature more as a person. So my, my, my older sister had just turned her husband. They had actually just gone through the process of buying a different house. They had sold their, their previous home, bought a new home. And she's like, well, here's my realtor. Like, you know, just give her a call. Like, just, you know, look on Zillow, find a couple of places and, and give her a call and, you know, no pressure. And so I'm like kind of freaking out because, because you sort of feel like you have to know the end goal before you take the first step which I think is is what trips people up so much. You know, calling a realtor is not the same as signing a contract for a 30-year mortgage. One is a first step. One is like a 12th step. And so I kind of like was freaking out, like kind of upset, didn't know what to do. I think I watched like a Father Mike Schmidt's video about making decisions. And he was kind of, he kind of had that advice about just take the next right step. Okay. Um, you can't like discernment is about gathering information. And so you can't like discern in isolation. You can't just think about all the abstract hypotheticals, like just make a choice, go forward, see what happens. So that's what I did. I found a couple places that were in my price range that were in like decent neighborhoods that kind of had, I mean, I, there wasn't a lot I was looking for, 
Um, I wanted a place that was affordable, a place that was safe. And a, ideally, I wanted a place with a, a sm- like a small fenced in backyard because I wanted to take my dog with me. And so I, you know, I called her up. She was really great. We planned a time to go look at these places. I think I toured like it was it was good. I toured like a, a variety. I saw, I think, two townhouses. I saw one single family house. that was like a small single family house. And then I think I saw one or two like condos. And one of the houses, it just kind of had everything I was looking for. You know, it wasn't some glamorous thing. You know, again, I'm on a teacher's salary, but just kind of had everything I was looking for. It was a really good price. It had the fenced in backyard. Um, You know, I was feeling good about our whole process of looking at the houses. You know, I wasn't feeling super anxious, super overwhelmed, super like, I don't know, I'm making a bad, a big mistake. And I really do believe it was the Holy Spirit because I, I, after, um, after that excursion, I think it was either that evening or the next day where at first I was like, well, you know, I, I think I'll reach out to her and, and see if we can take a second look at the house, um, you know, get it like, because there was one particular one that I was honed in on. And then I kind of found more about it. And I was like, you know what, like, let's just let's just go through with it, because here's the thing. And, and anybody who's bought a house before knows this, that just because you find a house and you're like, I want this house and you say I want this house. And even if you put a contract on it, it doesn't mean you're going to get the house. One, other people can outbid you. But two, you're going to go through the inspection and you're going to see if there's some craziness that it's wrong with the house. You have to get the house appraised, um, which means the price could go up. So there's there's so many other steps. And so kind of having that in mind, I was like, I'm just going to, you know, I kind of want this house. Like I feel and I, and I felt very at peace about it. Um, and just because I felt peace at 27 about this doesn't mean that everyone in the same position of life is going to feel that way. There's so many factors that go into a decision like that. But truly, I say this from every step of the way, like before, like after the initial freak out, anxiety, panic about like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I don't know what I'm going to be doing in 30 years. I don't want to buy a house as a single person. And just once I kind of was like, okay, take the next step, call a realtor, take the the next step, look at a couple houses, Take, take the next step, make an offer, take the next step, make the, um, you know, the inspection, all those things. I just felt total peace the entire way. And um, kind of a big confirmation going through that process was when the, um, I think they call it the lender. I don't really know all the financial terms. But I think it's the, the, like the, the loan officer or something like that. When she was able to get me a phenomenal interest rate. And interest rate is key because for me, so I have like pretty good credit. I had a stable job, not a super high salary, but a stable job. I had a little bit of assets because I had finally like said, okay, I guess I'm gonna do this like insurance or this, uh, what do they call it? Retirement plan. Cause like, that's, that's something else you have to think about when you're like 25 and you're like, I don't want to think about retirement, but then you find out that your employer, like, you know, matches three and a half percent. So you're like, I guess I'll put three and a half percent in so I can get your three and a half percent. And then, you know, I'm making money. I got a little bit of assets. I got, I'm an, I'm an, I'm an, I'm an investor. I lost my train of thought with all of that. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not an investor. But anyways, uh, but yeah, so interest rate, though, is really crucial because that's kind of going to determine like what your monthly payments are going to be because your monthly payment is going to have the principal, um, which is like the cost of the mortgage. And, you know, if there's any other like things that go into that uh, property taxes, all that, and then like divide it over 30 years, 12 months. But then the interest is really going to make a difference into what your monthly payment is going to be. And I was on a tight enough budget that the monthly payment, whatever I'm paying, whatever check is coming out of my account, you know, every month for my mortgage, 
insurance, property taxes, escrow, all those things that are kind of in you know one little statement. That was really going to be the the hit or miss. There is like, can I afford this monthly thing? And I got an amazing interest rate, and so my total like mortgage and all the things that are on that one bill was probably two two hundred fifty, maybe even three hundred dollars cheaper than like the cheapest kind of um, like one bedroom apartment that I would be getting. Um, now, of course, on top of that, you have water because I was on city water. You have electric. You know, you have a couple other things like that. But just getting that was kind of like confirmation. You know, the the inner peace, which is what you really want to look for with discernment. But then also some outer confirmation. Not to say that like obstacles always, like that obstacles are always coming from God trying to thwart you in one direction. Like certainly obstacles can just have very natural causes. Yeah, I mean like this economy right now, not a good economy. So if you're trying to buy a house in this economy and you're you're having a lot of obstacles, it doesn't necessarily mean like God is trying to thwart you there. It's just the fact that we have a bad economy. Um, and so discernment, it is tricky because you have to take in all of the factors, all of the external factors, all of the circumstantial factors, and then like kind of those, those sub- subjective internal factors, like do you feel peace? Do you feel calm? Do you feel, you know, are you in a state of panic or freaking out? And, and even if you are, like you also have to take into account, like, am I typically an anxious person? Like, a- a- am I more so anxious about the decision or is it this about decisions in general? Or is it this specific decision? So Sometimes it's just good to have, like, you want to have community that you can balance ideas off of. You want to have family. I really think it's good to have a spiritual director when you're trying to make big decisions. But I don't know. So that's a little bit of my story about buying a house as a single person. The hardest part for me, I think, was once I knew I was getting the house, I was so excited. And then comes that process of figuring out how you're going to fill the house. You know, because I'm going from living with my parents. So I have some possessions, but I don't have a house worth of possessions. I don't have a kitchen's worth of possessions. And it was a really bittersweet thing for me because I knew that so many of the things that I was buying for myself were things that all of my friends got as bridal shower gifts. You know, when you go to a bridal shower, when you look at a wedding registry, you know, or you know, wedding gifts, bridal shower gifts, it's it's things for your kitchen. It's things for your bathroom. It's things for your home. It's very practical things, but like somebody's going to pick those, you know, somebody's going to purchase them for you. And so not only am I having to spend my own limited money, my own limited funds on on buying all these things for my house, my kitchen, my bathroom, uh, my bedroom, etc. But like the reason why I'm buying them all for myself is because I'm not where I wish I were. I'm not at the point in life where I want to be and where all of my friends are. And that was really tough, like just on an emotional level. It wasn't super tough on a financial level just because I'm very thrifty. Facebook Marketplace, thrift stores, Ross, Marshalls, um, getting things used from, you know, family, friends, etc. So what I, you know, I'm grateful that it was not a huge financial burden But it was really tough emotionally to just feel that sadness of like, I'm doing all these things alone. Um, And and again, it's it's that tension because I'm like, how lucky was I to be able to afford a house as a single teacher? How lucky was I to be able to afford a house that was not in like a horribly crime-ridden neighborhood? How lucky was I to get that interest rate? How lucky was I to have all of these factors 
I had so much to be grateful for and I genuinely truly was and still am grateful but there was still this kind of tinge of sadness or this tinge of lon- I mean loneliness yeah I mean you know, there was a couple times where I'm like, it's a Saturday night and I'm going to Home Goods and I'm it's fun because I like going to Home Goods, but it's sad because I'm going to Home Goods by myself to decorate the home that I live in alone. But, you know, I truly believe that all things work for the good of those who love God. Obviously, scripture says that. But also, these things are so temporary. I, I have so many friends who got married young and have lived in so many different places throughout their marriage. Um, you know, they live in an apartment here, an apartment there. They, they're renting a house here. They're finally getting a mortgage there. Now they're getting a different mortgage here. And they, like most of my friends who, who, who got married have lived in at least two places, if not more, you know, in the duration of their, their marriage, which all of them, they've been married, you know, maybe seven to nine years. I don't even think I have friends who've been married 10 years yet. And so all these things are so temporary. So even though I'm buying this house as a single person, it's still temporary, it's probably not my forever home, even if I do get married. And so, you know, you have to live somewhere, right? So you might as well live in, in a place that is the best that you can afford, you know, more or less. And like, I know that whether I meet a guy and he is just living in an apartment and then we get married and he moves into my house and we live here for a while, or if he's got a bigger, better house somewhere else, or if we decide together that we want to buy a different house, Like, I have this kind of investment, you know? Like, I'll be able to sell this home or use it as a rental property. And, like, none of that was wasted. None of my time here was wasted. And just so I'll I'll kind of close with this last, like, sort of beautiful thing is that, like, let's see. So I moved to this house. I think I was 27. I'm 31 now for reference. Uh, So I'm coming up on four years in the house. So 27, and I, I really, I genuinely thought, okay, I've moved out. I've got the place, just need the guy, just need the man, just need the husband. He's right around the corner. And so I started dating somebody at 28, turned 29 while in that relationship, thought he was the person. He was not because he broke up with me and moved away. Um, But in the duration of our relationship, my sister and her husband, um, who were that couple that had moved around a ton in their marriage and in their brief at the, you know, still brief marriage, they, you know, found out my sister's pregnant. They were living in an apartment. They were looking for something more, you know, the apartment wasn't great. They were looking for something more permanent. And they ended up buying a house in the same neighborhood as me. And they still live there. And it was such a gift because when that relationship ended, I, you know, the loneliness that I was already inevitably going to feel was, was really helped by the fact that I had family and, and I really consider them to be like, best friends really but they were right across the street and so I spent a lot of time at their house you know after you know in the wake of that breakup but it was so nice to not feel as alone as I could have and that was just a a beautiful gift of God like again him leading me to this this house to this neighborhood however temporary it's going to be you know I'll be living here four years who knows how long I'll live here it could be only five years right six years, could be 10 years, could be 15 years, whatever. But just seeing like the way that God has worked in my life through this kind of strange decision is is really beautiful. And so if you're single and you're having to make those tough financial decisions, life decisions, future decisions, and like they're just tough in general, 
but then they're especially tough because you don't have that person to make, to plan for the future with. I just want to encourage you that God can still lead you in that time of singleness to a place of security, to a place of stability, to, you know, you know, he can provide for you and help you through those financial hurdles and and help you through that time of loneliness. Like he really, really, really can show up for you. And he's not just waiting. He's not just waiting to plan for you to plan for your future when you are married. Like he wants to cultivate a life for you in the present and that that will set you up in ways for the future. And and I don't want to like turn this into a prosperity gospel because that's a really tricky thing to do. Like we believe that God provides, we trust in God's providence But there are times when, you know, that's all we can trust in is God's providence because we don't have any backup situation. We don't have a savings account or an investment that is a a backup. We are literally just trusting in God. Uh, By the skin of our teeth, we are trusting God. And so that can be the case sometimes. But like, even if God has not led you to that spouse yet, that doesn't mean that he can't lead you and guide you through those like tough practical financial decisions. So... I'm a homeowner at 31, uh, but I do believe it is it, it, God has brought me to this place and and will use it all for good. So think we'll leave it at that. Um, thank you so much for listening. All right, let's jump into the mailbag. Um, here's a great question that came in. How to discern a guy's character in a long-distance relationship? So this is a really good question, and obviously it can go both ways. You know, how can how to discern a woman's character in a long-distance relationship? Uh, and I think the question hinges on the fact that when you're in a long-distance relationship, you're seeing each other for a concentrated amount of times, but they're very spread out. So you don't get to see them multiple times a week. Maybe you're going to see them for a weekend or, you know, a two-day, three-day weekend once a month. Um, and that might even be generous for, for some long-distance relationships. So how do you really get to know someone's character during that time? So a couple of things here. Um, and then I'll share some advice that others gave. And I'd love to hear if you have further advice, especially if you've actually been in a long-distance relationship and kind of give some uh, of your wisdom Call into the hotline, send me a DM on Instagram. Would love to share it with people. I think the first thing I'd say is one, make sure you're having frequent communication, frequent conversations. Like if you're in a committed long distance relationship, you should be ta- at least talking on the phone or FaceTiming, I'd say at least three times a week. It might not even be a bad idea to aim for every day, but maybe it becomes more like five or six days a week, you know, depending on the week. But I'd say at least like three times a week, you should be talking on the phone or FaceTiming for like a solid hour each time. And just building up that rapport, that communication, because part of character is definitely just finding out what someone thinks and what they believe. Because obviously if someone's beliefs are wacky and their opinions are wacky, like that tells you all you need to know. The, the, the challenge is more so when their beliefs are solid, their opinions are solid, you know, their, their, their morals in, in like the mental sense or the intellectual sense are solid, but you need to see if they, if, if their character, their actions actually conform to those morals and values. And so one thing I would say is, and somebody brought this up in, in the uh, advice is like, make sure that when you do spend time together, you're not just purely going on like fun dates and like kind of doing that like romantic thing like 
try to work in some mundaneness together. So maybe instead of going out to a restaurant one night, you're going to cook a meal together. And so you're going to go to the grocery store together, uh, run a couple errands together and kind of have that mundaneness going on. I think when you also start inviting, you know, introducing the person to friends and family, that can also help their character come out, you know, as as you guys have been together for longer and as you've introduced them, uh, introduced them to more people, you don't have to hover quite as much. Like, it, well, you know, the first time you bring somebody home or the first time you do introduce somebody to, to friends, like you don't want to just abandon them and be like, all right, I'm going to go over here and like, you know, let you fend for yourself. Like, of course not. But as the, the familiarity builds, you can kind of create a little bit of distance in those situations, not, not in like a way that's going to uh, make the person feel like you're, again, abandoning them or, or you know, I don't know. Um, but you but like just seeing how they're interacting with people when you're not directly around, I think is, is something that's going to be a, a really good key into their character. Um, people talk about the love languages a lot. I think you know, maybe I think we'll do an episode at some point on the love languages. I've I've mixed feelings about them, but you know, things like words of affirmation. I this is no diss to that as as a love language or or as a way of showing affection, but that's something that can really be faked. You know, physical touch, something that can also be either faked or, or done more so for for pleasure. And so I would really be looking at the quality time and then the the acts of service in a long distance relationship. Like, are there ways that that person, especially acts of service, like are there ways that that person is showing up for you despite the distance? Because that's like, especially that is of all the, um, of all the love languages, that's the one that's like the least pleasurable to do for somebody else. And the one that is also the most difficult to do for somebody else, right? Physical touch is pretty reciprocal. You know, you give a gift, you get to see their expression. They're so excited. Oh my gosh, I love it. Thank you so much. Um, you know, words of affirmation are, are great, uh, but they don't, you know, it, talk can can be sort of cheap in, in a sense. Um so besides the fact of like prioritizing quality time, which can include quality conversation, talking on the phone multiple times a week or FaceTime multiple times a week, I think like looking for ways for them to, to serve you. And it could be something simple, like they're, they're saying that they're praying for you or they're checking in because they know you're going to have a stressful day or, you know, they're, they're, you can kind of combine like that uh, with, with gifts. Maybe they send you like a little thank you note, you know, or a little word of encouragement, like a little sweet letter. Um, if they know you're going through something, something tough or, or the times when you're together, you know, are they offering help with the dishes? Are they, you know, kind of just making it seem like you have to plan everything versus is it more reciprocal? So those are a couple things I'd look for. So I think to kind of summarize that, I said, like, make sure you're prioritizing quality conversation multiple times a week. When you do get together, make sure that you are doing not just date stuff, but also like kind of mundane stuff. Uh, make sure you're introducing them to friends and family and then getting to the point where you can step back and kind of observe them and, and see how things are going. And then seeing how they show up with like the, the acts of service um, in terms of the love languages. And then I guess one other thing, and, and this depends on where you are at in the relationship and also depends on kind of your boundaries and, and how you are, you know, with chastity and stuff like that. But I think eventually, if it's a long distance relationship, you eventually want to be able to spend a lengthy period of time together. So a week, two weeks, maybe even a month, depending on what your schedules are. So maybe that means going on a trip together, a vacation together. Or maybe that means one of you staying in the other person's city for a prolonged period of time. 
you know, more than just that fun weekend. You know, maybe somebody has a flexible job where they can work from home and they can go and rent out an Airbnb for a month and like live in that person's city. I would, I mean, apart from just the general question of discerning someone's character, just like discerning the relationship, if it's long distance, definitely eventually, you know, eventually, you know, you don't have to rush it, but get to that point where you can spend a prolonged period of time together. All right. So a couple other, like when I posted this on my Instagram, I got a couple of comments here. Somebody said, visit, spend time together, have real conversations, try to spend time together in non-vacation-like settings, in parentheses, go grocery shopping, paint a room, etc. That's a fun one. Like not necessarily paint a room specifically, but like a household project. Again, you can kind of see how they show up, you know, their work ethic a little bit. Maybe find opportunities to do service together. I don't know if that sounds weird or doofy, but I, I really actually think that'd be a beautiful thing. Like to find ways to to serve, you know, community service, church service together. They also said, you know, have the hard conversations and ask the hard questions for sure. Um, another person said, it's not too different than in person. It's all about the conversations you have. How does he show up for you? Is he consistent? Yes, consistency is so key. You know, it's not just good when you're together, but it's good when you're apart. The communication is consistent. The, the um, you know, you can tell that you're a priority. Not that people you know, aren't busy and don't have lives and don't have to like have their own obligations, but consistency, re- like it could just, and, and schedule things. I mean, you know, we talk every night at 730. That's great. Um, continuing on here, they said, how do you feel when you're speaking with him, asking good questions, to discern shared values? I've, and then they said a personal story. I feel like I got to know my boyfriend deeply over FaceTime before we met. We would talk for hours every day, much more than I would have probably spoken to someone local in the first month and then you try to meet them up uh meet up as soon as you can to make sure the connection works in person it's definitely challenging but very possible yeah so i mean that's kind of in a weird way the benefit of of long distance dating is that you have to prioritize conversation and i think eventually you know again we can all kind of put our best foot forward but i think eventually after prolonged conversations over weeks over months you can start to see if somebody's sort of full of it yeah All right, and then somebody else asked a question. He says, this happens with a lot of Catholic girls. You invite her out for alcohol in a group outing or a one-on-one date. She gets uncomfortable and awkward and makes some comment indicating she doesn't really drink or doesn't have money or some other BS I'm busy excuse. She proceeds to post on her social media, pics, videos from an outing in which alcohol was obviously consumed by her and a lot of it. So his question is, why do girls do this? So I can't really speak to whether or not this is a common phenomenon amongst Catholic girls. Um, but I do think this speaks to a larger phenomenon amongst girls in general, which is kind of a flakiness. And that can happen for two reasons. Um And both of them stem from the difficulty that women often have saying no. Part of this is personality and temperament. Women, on average, tend to be much more agreeable than men, um, which means that we don't like to displease people. And so we often communicate things very indirectly rather than just straight up communicating directly. Um, And I think part of the reason for that might be related to a woman's relative defenselessness vis-a-vis 
a man, um, you know, just talking here from a physical standpoint, that like women have to use other means of avoiding conflict because if push comes to shove, she would not be able to contend um, physically. And so I think because of that sort of sociological, biological reality, um, that leads to a lot of women being on the flaky side, meaning having a difficult time saying no and sometimes even telling a lie uh, instead of just being blunt. Now, some of this can just be immaturity, you know. Um, Some of it could have a little bit more going on. I think in some cases, a woman might make an excuse simply because she doesn't want to, like, reject a guy or, like, hurt his feelings. And so she kind of says something that she thinks will be a little bit more, like, socially acceptable, you know, uh, protect his ego a little bit. Um, But then, of course, when a guy finds out that she didn't mean what she said, that can be very hurtful. You know, it's kind of like when a guy asks a girl and she's like, oh, I'm not really dating right now I'm just focusing on x y and z and then a few months later she has a boyfriend now I mean to be fair she could have changed her mind within the next few months and you know her life could have changed but also she could have just been trying to say something nice instead of just telling the guy oh thank you so much but I I don't think I'm interested um you know a lot of times girls add I'm not interested at this time (laughs) because again it's so hard and I know that men don't understand this but it's very very hard for a lot of women to just bluntly reject someone um but it's also possible I mean you said in your question she gets uncomfortable and awkward there could be a legitimate reason for that um you know something could happen that makes her feel unsafe or makes her feel creeped out and she's just looking for the quickest exit you know um I remember once in college, I went, this is the one time, the only time in college, I went out to like a club with some friends and, you know, this is like pre-Me Too days and so I don't know what it's like in the clubs now, but like, you know, you're dancing, you're having a good time and like a dude will just come up and start dancing with you and you're like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing in the club. Um, And so I remember that happening a few times and then like as me and my friends are trying to leave and go home, like one of the guys that I dance with or you know, dance with me, was, like, trying to, like, you know, walk out with us, like, come back with us, like, follow us back, and I felt kind of creeped out by it, and maybe he was safe, and I just sort of felt uncomfortable, or maybe he wasn't safe, I I don't know, but um, I didn't know how to lose him, and so my friend was like, okay, I'm gonna pretend to be drunk, and you're gonna pretend like you have to take care of me, and that's what we did, and was it honest? No, but I didn't know how to tell a guy, get lost, (laughs) um, and so we had this little charade. Um, and, I, and I know that can be, you know, to, a, to a, some guys that might be hard to hear. But it a lot of times it is kind of related to safety. You know, women will have signals so that if a guy starts talking about the bar and they don't feel comfortable, um, they have this signal and like their girlfriend will come up and kind of just like pull them away. Um And a lot of times the action, the same action can be if she just simply isn't interested or if she actually does feel unsafe. Um, And so I think this leads to a broader question that I I would like to do an episode on, which is like the creepiness label. Um, Sometimes guys will get labeled as creepy. 
Sometimes guys genuinely are creepy. Sometimes guys are socially awkward and do things that women perceive as creepy. Um, and sometimes women completely mislabel guys as creepy. Um, and so I want to talk about like what makes a guy genuine, genuinely creepy and not genuinely creepy. So, I, you know, I don't know what ha- was happening in these specific situations, um, but it is, ha- it, I mean, it, you, it seems from your comment, it's happened on more than one occasion, um, but maybe there's someone in this circle that can give you some intel, but, you know, if they're super young, they're probably more likely to be on the flaky side, but it is also possible that you said something or did something that made them genuinely uncomfortable. So, yeah, I think that's all I'll say about that for now. All right. So best of luck to you in your dating endeavors. Make sure you're following me at the Catholic Bachelorette on Instagram. You can DM me your dating questions, your dating stories, your dating horrors. Um, And you can also call the hotline, which is the phone number of 571-348-4132. That's a Google voice number. So you just give me a call, leave a little message, a little voicemail. And I might just play it on the pod. So thanks for listening. Happy dating. Good night.